Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Roots Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers. And we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Alrighty. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to Heartwork. Welcome back home. Uh, it's good to have everybody here, alhamdulillah, um, under 100 degree temperature as we inch closer and closer towards normal uh, outdoor weather, inshallah, in Dallas, Texas. Um, Want to welcome everybody, inshallah, those of you who have come before, those of you who it's your first time here or uh, haven't come since uh, for a while. Uh, this is our temporary space that we're utilizing, the backyard of the Old Valley Ranch Masjid, inshallah, so that we can continue having gatherings here. Uh, we've been having heart work for the past couple of weeks, and inshallah, this week, we're going to start having on Thursday night, our college programming, soul food, and then on Sunday evening, we're going to have our 30 and up halakha as well. So just keep your eyes uh, open for that, inshallah, and if it applies to you or anybody that you know, uh, be sure to let them know, inshallah, that we'll be having those. And uh, hopefully, for the time being, uh, we'll be able to consistently have those, of course, with the wet weather cooperating with us, inshallah. Um, these topics on Monday night are reflections from the life of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, And so we're going in chronological order, and we're covering the life of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. And the goal is that, you know, no matter how many times you study his life, it's so remarkable because you can always pull lessons from it. You know, every time you read the biography of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, you're always going to come across something that's interesting. Um, it's like watching a movie three or four times, and you still notice something different or new that you didn't notice in the previous times that you saw it. So when you when you read and study the life of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu you pick up on these things that are just amazing each time. And for whatever phase of life you're in, um, you're going to find things that are relevant to you in that moment. And so we are discussing or spending our Monday nights discussing the life of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu from the lens of a young professional and what we can learn when it comes to our own development uh, from those kinds of moments. In the last class on last Monday, uh, we covered uh, the conversion of two amazing people in the life of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Two people that you probably wouldn't have thought about their stories being so intertwined. Um, two individuals you may know, Khalid ibn al-Walid and Amr ibn al-As. Uh, may Allah be pleased with both of them. Two amazing people. And what made them so remarkable, what made their conversion so powerful uh, in its own unique way, as compared to, for example, the conversion of Abu Bakr Siddiq or others, is that they spent the majority of the life of the Prophet Muhammad as his enemy, or the majority of his time teaching Islam as his enemy. They participated in, you know, Islamophobic campaigns against him. They participated in battle against him. In fact, they were the architects of the Battle of Uhud, in which was quite possibly, you know, the second most painful day in his life after 
that day of Ta'if when he was rejected by his people. And so for them to come to the Prophet Muhammad and for them to place their hands in his hand and to say that we accept you as our prophet, our teacher, the messenger of God, that was a huge moment. It was a huge, a massively huge moment. And the lesson that we took from those is that, you know, first and foremost, the Prophet never gave up on them, that he worked on them for a long time. Number two is that even though they had a huge, a huge list and a reputation and a resume of destruction and of, of, of sinful activities, you know, hurting Muslims, torturing them, etc., he still didn't turn them away. You know, he still didn't tell them that, no, no, you're not valid. Your Islam is not valid here. He accepted them despite all of their past, all of their history. Now, the next phase, as we are inching closer to the end of the seerah, the life of the Prophet Muhammad is the engagement that the Prophet had with uh, a community on the southern side of Syria known as the Byzantines. And again, the way that this works is that oftentimes the way it's framed by like Orientalists, if you guys watch like, you know, if you guys are in university or watch Fox News, uh, which I don't know why you would watch Fox News, but if you do, the way that it's purported um, is that, you know, when you study Islamic history, you see that there were like conquests that the Muslims went on and they were like focused on conquering lands and subjugating them to Islam and submitting and this and this. But when you actually read the history books, you see that, there were more than one option for these individuals. It wasn't convert or die. That's not what it was. In fact, there's something called the jizya, which is basically, if you don't want to be Muslim, that's fine. We're still going to be responsible for the infrastructure and for the government. And so now, instead of paying zakat 2.5% as a Muslim, you're going to pay what's called jizya, which is 2.5% tax. So either way, we're going to get our 2.5%. And what's that 2.5% going to do? It's going to be distributed towards the social welfare, to make sure that those who don't have food can eat, those who don't have homes can sleep, those who don't have clothes can be dressed, right? And so there were options for people, but the primary function of the Prophet Muhammad sending letters to leaders across the area was to establish a, an ecosystem of peace to make sure that when the Muslims put their heads on their pillows at night in Medina, they wouldn't have to wonder... Am I going to wake up with some tribe, you know, standing over me, you know, taking my life? So, right. So we need to make sure that we have peace agreements. And the reason why, you know, in the Western world and postmodern Western America, why for us this is so strange is because for a lot of people internationally, right, we've never experienced uh, uh, hostile country relationships. Like we can, we can name on like maybe a few fingers, right, in our lifetime, countries that America has documented formal hostilities with, meaning like we can't travel here, can't travel there. There's no goodwill, no diplomats, nothing, right? For us, it's always been like, well, the world kind of exists in this cohesive, you know, illusion of harmony. So when we see stuff like this, we're like, man, that's interesting. Why would he send a messenger to Byzantine or to Byz Byzantium, to Southern Syria? Why would he send them there to try to establish? Because he's trying to forge peace. So what he does, he sends one of his messengers, Al-Harith ibn Umair, and when he arrives there, he presents the Prophet Sallallahu letter to the, uh, to the governor of that area, whose name was Shurahbil. Shurahbil was the governor of that area. Now, they were Christian, 
this group where they were under Christian rule, right? The Romans essentially ended up becoming the Romans. And what he did was normally the rule for messengers when it comes to people from other countries, diplomats, whatever you want to call them, is what? Peace. They're treated peacefully. If a messenger, it doesn't matter if you don't know who they are. It doesn't matter if you end up not liking them. The general rule, like the Geneva Convention of 1400 years ago, Arabia, was if a, if a community sends a messenger to you and that messenger is, you know, just trying to communicate, build bridges, reach out, they should not be harmed. And neither should your messengers be harmed. If you send a messenger to somebody, they should also be safe. So what does Shurahbil do to the messenger that the Prophet Muhammad sent? Well, as a statement, what he does is he takes him and he uh, ties him up and he publicly displays him as being a prisoner. And then by the end of that whole ordeal, he ends up executing him. He ends up executing the companion of the Prophet Muhammad Harith ibn Umair. So what does the Prophet do? When this news gets back to him, the Prophet has no choice but to understand this as a declaration of hostility, of war. Because if I'm sending a messenger with you who has a letter that just says, you know, this is from the messenger of God, let's agree to have a treaty like we do with the Quraysh, right? 10 years, no fighting, things like that. And then you end up killing that guy. Well, it's clear that you have no problem inflicting some damage or pain on anybody. So he ends up executing him. The Prophet Muhammad says that, well, our next step is that we have to assemble our army and we're going to have to get together as many people as we can to go and to engage with them, right, militarily. That's just the only way that we have to do this. So what he does is he puts together an army and they reach about 3,000 people. They reach about 3,000 people, which to some of you, you're looking, you're like, wow, that's a lot of people, 3,000 people, right? Um, the Byzantine Empire was massive, was massive. And so they had Heracles, not Hercules, Heracles, right? Who was, the, who was the, the, the leader who was in Jerusalem, who talked to Abu Sufyan about Islam, uh, who was there like on a Christian pilgrimage. They had uh, Shurahbil. They had a lot. They had people from southern Syria. They had a lot of people. And so the more conservative number about how many soldiers they had amassed in order to engage in battle was actually 100,000, the more conservative. Some scholars of history say 200,000. I know what you guys are thinking right now. You're like, okay, 100,000 versus 3,000? Like this is, you know, there's no chance, right? This is like the Cowboys versus the Bears. There's no chance. The Cowboys don't stand a chance, right? So 3,000 people. I mean, numerically, you do this and you're like, I don't even know if you can call this a battle, right? Like, I don't know if you can actually name this a battle. This is not a battle. And surprisingly, subhanAllah, Abu Hurairah, who many of us have heard his name before, Abu Hurairah, he had a similar response. When he, he was a very new convert to Islam, Abu Hurairah was fresh. And so when he saw this, when he saw that there were 100,000 people, that they were outnumbered by 97,000, he actually like kind of stopped for a second. They were marching the battle and he was like, wait a minute, are you serious? And so one of the other companions who was there with him, his name was Thabit. Thabit means firm, right? It means like someone who's 
firm, strong, right? Thabit. So Thabit says to him, he says, what's the matter? And Abu Huraira says, I don't know, man, like 97,000 people more. I don't like, do you guys expect to win? Like, what's the, what's the strategy here? And Thabit smiles at him and Thabit says, are you, are you overwhelmed by the number of people? Like, are you scared? And Abu Huraira says, quite frankly, yes, I am. Right? Quite frankly, absolutely, I'm frightened. And Thabit smiles and he says to him, you weren't at the Battle of Badr. He says, you weren't there. The Battle of Badr, which happened years prior to this, just after the Muslims had migrated to Medina, for those of you who remember the story, even from you know the renditions that we heard maybe in, in other areas, Sunday school and not, the Battle of Badr was a guaranteed loss for the Muslims. Guaranteed. 300 versus 1,000. They didn't even show up to fight. They were, they, they were ambushed. They didn't have anything. They didn't have any weapons. They had one horse, 300 people. They weren't all riding that one horse, but they just had one guy with a horse and then everyone else. Some of the companions had nothing. They had sticks. You know that stick behind me? They had sticks. And for shield, they used like straw or big leaves. So Thabit looks at Abu Huraira and he says, you're scared? And he goes, you weren't at Badr when we were going against Quraysh at their strongest, at their peak, with all of their confidence and arrogance. And he said, and we had nothing. We had sticks and stones. And we were wearing like shib shib, like these sandals, like chappals. And we just showed up and we just said, Bismillah. And he said, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the angels from the heavens to help us and gave us victory. So he said, you weren't at Badr. Don't worry. I, can, I know why you're nervous because you've never experienced this before. And, and, and I wanted to pause here and tell you a couple. And he says one line that's powerful. He goes, we've never been a people of numbers. Right? In Medina, a lot of us think, well, in Medina, it must have been like amazing. Like you're walking down the street and you see like Omar bin Khattab at Kroger, like Abu Bakr making cotton candy, like having cotton candy with his kids. Like you see like Ibn Abbas, like just hang. Like you're like, man, if I only lived in the time of the Prophet, I would be a perfect Muslim. Why? Because there's like this homogeneously Muslim experience. I would be there. I would hear the Adhan. And sometimes we also sort of also fantasize about the Muslim majority country experience. No doubt hearing the Adhan is beautiful. No doubt not having to worry about whether or not that pepperoni on your pizza is halal. Although there are some who still wonder if the pepperoni in Turkey is pork, right? No doubt there's some benefits to that. But truth be told, what Thabit says here is powerful. He goes, we've never been a community of numbers. There have always been more than us from other groups. We've never been like the big group, right? And when I read this line, it actually gave me goosebumps because ever since I can remember, right? I was born in 1988. Ever since I can remember, Muslims have always been the other, right? I mean, for a while, we were just the other in the sense that we were just like, yeah, they're just, you know, immigrant people who make good food. And then post 9-11, it was like, even though, to be honest with you, Muslims, especially Arabs, were always portrayed as villains in movies and things like that. And then after 9-11, it's like you're always being watched, right? When I fly, I have to wait in airports for five, six hours before I can get free from security. Like, I haven't flown for a minute, actually, but that's the norm for me, right? And everybody here, I'm sure everyone has their stories about how their Muslimness or their otherness or their blackness has been like an indication of something for them, right? So when I heard this, it actually gave me goosebumps. I said, subhanAllah, man, we've always been the other. Like Thabit is telling Abu Huraira, 
it's okay. Embrace your minority status. Like embrace it. Like don't don't run away from it because you what you don't have in numbers you have spiritually with Allah. Like what you don't have in numbers you have with God, and that's why the Prophet Muhammad he famously said what when he when he and Abu Bakr were running away from Mecca, he looks at him in the cave and he says, "Yeah, Abu Bakr." He says, "Ma Like what do you think? What do you think about Ithnan? Allah, that the third one is God with them. There's only two of us here. We're being chased down by God knows how many people. But you know what? We have Allah. We don't have to be worried. Right? So number one is that faith is always measured qualitatively. You don't look at numbers for success. That's not how Muslims operate. Right? That's how different systems operate. That's how your work might operate. Right? That's how schools might operate. That's how the Secular society might operate, but spiritually, we cannot become people who are obsessed with quantity. So he says to him, we've never been a people of number. The second thing that I love about this story is who was the companion who was scared? What was his name again? Abu who? Huraira. Abu Huraira is like a big deal. He's a very well-known companion. If you ever read a hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu if you read 10 of them, you're probably going to come across Abu Huraira's name at least five times. Right? He was always there. Spiritually, this man was a giant. Amazing. But he still had fear. And this is the struggle that we have. How many of you have ever felt like, well, if only I were more religious, I wouldn't feel scared of this. Like layoffs are coming. The economy looks interesting. You know, there was a person who described the economy in the, in the Economist magazine. Go figure. He was describing the economy. He said that the economy right now, due to Corona, is like a plane whose engine has stopped and it's just kind of floating in midair for a second. You know, like when planes go down, they don't just go like, Psh. so he's like, we're just kind of floating, right? And that's why people are still like shopping it up, buying stuff. And he's like, we'll see what the impact of this is. And when you read those lines, how do you feel? Honestly, how do you feel? You're like, subhanAllah. You know, like I have all these responsibilities financially. I have mortgage. I have rent. I have this car payment. I have this. How am I going? How am I going to make it? Maybe you're in an industry that's going to get hit. Maybe you're in school right now. Maybe, maybe, maybe you just took on a new home payment and you're like, I shouldn't have done that. Maybe you just bought something in finance that you're like, I uh, probably shouldn't have done that, right? And you look to yourself. You're like, man, if only I were more pious, I wouldn't have these emotions, these fears. That's not true. It's not true because Abu Huraira in this moment expressed his concern, his fear, right? Piety doesn't remove your emotions. It helps you deal with them. Piety doesn't erase your humanity. It helps you deal with it. That's why like when people say, oh, go pray, prayer doesn't erase your fear. It helps you cope with it, right? You're still allowed to feel the fear. But the reason why people say go pray is not to say, well, don't be afraid. Just pray. They say, well, because you're afraid, pray. Right? Because you're concerned, go to Allah. And you'll find the strength in that conversation that you're having. So this is an amazing little conversation that they have together that I thought was amazingly beneficial, subhanAllah. So the Prophet ﷺ, he chooses three commanders to be in charge of this army. Instead of just one of them, he says that there's going to be three of you that are in charge. And he, he orders them in sequence, which means what? He says that there's like a number one, a number two, and a number three. 
So the first one is Zayd ibn Haritha, who is one of the closest companions to the Prophet Muhammad He's one of the first people that had ever become Muslim. Okay. The second is Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, who is the Prophet's cousin, the brother of Ali. Okay, so it's his cousin. And the third was Abdullah ibn Rawaha, who was also a notable companion who the Prophet when they went to uh, to Mecca for their Umrah, they were there together and they spent some time together. These were the three commanders of this battle. When they engaged in battle, they all fought bravely, you know, courageously, and they all have their own story. The, the, the battle itself has its own, the Battle of Mu'tah has its own sort of timeline. We're not going to go through each of the battle details in, uh, in, in detail, but they all fought bravely, but they were each killed one by one. So Zaydan Haritha was killed. Ja'far bin Abi Talib, unfortunately, was also killed. And Abdullah bin Rawaha was also uh, martyred. They were all martyred in this battle. The Prophet ﷺ had assigned to them that these are going to be your three generals. So what happens after that? Are we done? Right? No? Okay. What happens next? He said, the Prophet ﷺ said, that if three of them are killed, that... You elect from yourself the fourth one. You elect from yourself the fourth one. Sorry, let me just reset the subject. MashaAllah, the wind is strong. Can't stop a virus, can't stop this piece of plexiglass. Okay. So he said, you elect from yourself the fourth one. Okay. They, the army looked... And they looked at Thabit. Thabit was the guy who told Abu Huraira, right? His faith was super strong. So they told him, you, you should be our leader. You're holding the flag. And he said, no, not me. I don't want to be it. Now, who was with this army was a person, just a little someone, who might know a little something about military strategy. His name was Khalid ibn walid Khalid was there. Khalid was there. When you read the story and you see him, you're like, wait a minute. Why were there four people chosen before him? It's lit- Guys, let me t- explain to you who Khalid was, okay? If you're playing pickup basketball, okay, and you have, you know, Muggsy Bogues, John Stockton, random player, I don't know, Derek Fisher, and then you got, like, Michael Jordan. Who are you picking first? Michael Jordan, LeBron James. Like, who are you going to pick first? Even people who know nothing about basketball. If you had four random NBA players and Michael Jordan, who are you picking first? You're picking Michael first. I'm sorry. And if you are not, then you're probably a Pistons fan. You're a hater. Okay? So, you like, the way that we've been programmed, all right, is that, well, you look at the individual greatness of somebody, and you're like, this person is the first choice, right? Whether it's, you know anything, whether it's sports or whether it's business, right? And you guys might have felt this even in your work, right? That there are people who are just kind of like chosen because of maybe some reason that gives them the status of great. But in reality, maybe they don't have the seniority that you do. Maybe they don't have the experience that you do. Maybe they're new to the project, right? And so it's actually a flaw on behalf of like whoever's in charge to pick that person because even though they have the raw talent, they don't have other immeasurables, things that you do, you can't you can't really find out via just someone's resume. So Khalid was the fifth person, and when you read the story, you're like, this is shocking because he should have been, because of his military genius, 
and because of his military power, he should have been number one. But the Prophet didn't do that. Why? Why not? Well, what was the last Monday? What did we just talk about? Khalid had just what? He just became what? He just became Muslim. He had just accepted Islam. So it, it, even though he's a military genius and you're about to go engage in one of the hardest military endeavors that you've ever been up against, he still doesn't have the community maybe buy-in yet, right? He doesn't have that buy-in. So if you put him in charge of all these people, 3,000, 2,999 other people, they're going to look at him and be like, yeah, I remember fighting against you just a few years back. Right, so you see here the genius of the Prophet ﷺ, that he's not like, oh, you know what, we got Khalid now, he's the de facto leader number one. No, there are other things that you take into consideration. And so the Prophet ﷺ takes this into consideration, he says, you know what, I'm going to choose these three as leaders, and then eventually the people elect Khalid to be a leader in and of himself. And then what does Khalid do? Even though Khalid knows he's the best, even though he knows he's a genius, does he complain? When he's not chosen, does he does he pout? Does he not show up? Like when he's getting ready to go and the Prophet Sallallahu says, you three, you're the leader. And he's like, excuse where's my name? That's it, I'm not going. I'm still new to this whole Islam thing. Let me learn how to pray first. No, he doesn't bail. He goes and he does what he is told to do. You know? And this is this is one of the greatest skills that really any leader can have is the ability to adapt and do what is needed to be done. You know, I told the story of Sheikh Sha'arawi before. I'm going to tell it again. It's an amazing story. Sheikh Sha'arawi, one of the greatest teachers of Egypt, maybe the world ever, historically. I grew up hearing his lectures in my house on tapes. Do you guys know what tapes are? Cassette tapes? You know what those are, right? Okay. It was before CDs, before MP3 player CDs, right? Sheikh Sha'arawi is like a legend. And... I mean, we're talking like, you know, there's he probably could fill up this entire block with people listening to his lectures. If you look at his videos from Egypt, insane. We're talking like 10,000 people in one lecture just listening because the speaker systems in Egypt, they're all wired, every single one of them, by the same electrician. So you can connect it to like everywhere, right? So, <laughs> so the speaker from the masjid, like for some reason, you're hearing the lecture from down the street in the corner store. So... This man, people are coming to his lecture. And again, how many thousands of people are coming through? Everybody. So he looks out the window and he sees these like waves of people, like waves of the ocean crashing. Like they're like coming in, as Allah describes in the Quran, like waves. And he feels in his heart a sense of like a little bit of pride, a little bit of arrogance. So fast forward, it's time for the lecture. And his son, who's telling the story, because his father never told the story to anybody. It was only his son later. His son's like, I was looking for my dad. Because it's time for him to give the lecture. People are waiting for him. And I'm looking all around, all around. I couldn't find him. And then finally, I'm like, you know, is he in the bathroom? Like, is he feeling okay? So he goes to the bathroom. And he looks and he finds his dad, his father, the sheikh, on the floor, on his knees, in his beautiful, you know, his, his Egyptian robes his teaching robes and he's scrubbing not the toilet seat guys but the hole in the floor there's a difference you guys know the difference everyone ever seen a hole in the floor toilet not the toilet seat the hole 
Okay. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it. Just Google Eastern toilet. It's a little bit, it's a little bit problematic that they call it the Eastern toilet, right? But either, anyways, it's a lot more dirty. Let's just put it that way. He's scrubbing it. He's cleaning it. And his son is like, dad, what are you doing? You have to go give a lecture. What, why are you doing this right? Why are you doing this in the first place? You shouldn't be doing this. And he said, my son, when I looked out the window and I saw these people coming to learn from me, he goes, I felt a, a little bit of arrogance in my heart. And I wanted to remind myself who I was. I'm a servant of God. I'm nobody special. And a servant of God can clean a toilet. Right? In God's house, in the masjid. And so he said, that's what I'll do. He goes, I wanted to get myself right before my class. Because I don't want to go teach people as arrogant. I want to teach people after right, reminding myself who I was. You see this kind of just, you know, beautiful humility. Khalid ibn walid same thing. Right? He knows he's the best person for the job. Is quiet the whole time. Finally, he's elected to be the general. And what does he do? Because he has that experience, because he has that know-how, what he does is that he devises a new strategy. The way that battles were fought back then was that it wasn't a 24-hour battle, right? There were times of fighting and times of resting. There were times of engaging and retreating. So when the day was over and the battle was, you know, postponed, there's intermission, so to speak, um, Khaled came up with a new plan where basically he said, we're going to flip we're going to alternate groups every now and then. And why he did that was because the other army, they became concerned. Every few hours, they would see new faces. So they thought they were fighting an unlimited army, an endless group. And if the irony was that they were only fighting 3,000 people, but the people who were 100,000 became scared. And then what Khaled said, again, a smart idea, and there's a reason I'm telling you this. What he did was he said, as we fight, every now and then, we're going to actually go back a little bit. So the, the line of battle, we're going to pull it back a little bit, like the line of scrimmage in football. It's almost like we're going to take three yards. Every couple downs, we're going to go back a little bit. And so what ends up happening is that the, the Byzantines, these people who are not desert dwellers, right? They're not desert dwelling people. After a few hours, they're noticing, dude, we're like 500, 600, 700 yards into the desert. And these people keep pulling us back. And I don't know where these guys keep coming from. I see a new face every hour. And he goes, are they pulling us into the desert? Like, are they basically what? Pulling us into their territory so that they can dehydrate us and starve us and leave us here to die? Like, they, these guys are actually getting a little bit rattled internally. So what ends up happening is Khalid knows, Khalid knows that there's no chance at an outright victory. 3,000 versus 100,000. There's no chance. So what he does, he says, our goal now is to save as many of us as we can while inflicting as much damage as we can and then eventually returning back to Medina to re-strategize. So after a few days of this, they end up going back to Medina, okay? The battle is not clearly won. Like, there's no clear victor. It's not like the other battles. They left. As they come back to Medina, you know what happens? There are people who are waiting for these people and they're coming back to Medina, you know what happened? They start calling out at them. Oh, you guys lost. We heard you. These are Muslim. Oh, you guys lost. Right? Oh, you guys couldn't fight? What happened? I thought you were... What happened? Why did you guys come back? Why did you... 
I, I thought it was to the death, right? You had some people who were maybe a little bit on the foolish side. You also had some children. There were some kids involved too, by the way. The narration says there were some children. You know, sometimes kids just talk too much, right? So they're like, they're like yelling at these grown men who just got done battling after traveling for weeks. Like, you know, why would you come back, right? And subhanAllah, you know what the Prophet Sallallahu says? He hears this. He hears the people jeering. And he says, no, they have been victorious. God has chosen them to come back and to live another day. You know, this story, to me, it just shakes me because how many of us have ever had the, the Muslim community, right? People that we, people, our brothers and sisters, maybe have said or done something that like hurt us, like looked at us a different way, said something. Maybe there was some judgment involved or something, right? It happens. It's happening to Khalid and Walid. It's happening to people who just went out and fought. Sometimes we are so convinced that our experiences are so novel and so 100% never happened before that when you open up a book of Sirah, you're like, wow, they also were kind of ridiculed by their own community. So how did the Prophet respond? He corrected them and he said, no, you're wrong. And he taught them that victory comes in many ways. Victory comes in many ways. What's the way that everybody was hoping for? They were hoping for 3,000 versus 100,000 becomes 3,000 versus zero. You defeat them. You destroy their army, right? That's the one way that everybody imagined. But we should never limit Allah in his response to what victory is for us. You never limit God with your imagination. You never say, oh Allah, this is what I want and that's it. If I don't get what I want the way that I want it, then it's not what I wanted. That's not how they approached Allah. They said, oh Allah, grant us victory. Some of them were imagining victory as 3,000, defeat 100,000. But the way that the pious amongst them imagined victory was, oh Allah, allow us to do what's pleasing to you. What is victory for the Muslim? Victory for you is when you do what's pleasing to Allah. That's victory. For sometimes, for you, victory is getting a job. For sometimes, victory is resigning from your job. Sometimes, victory for you is standing up in the face of injustice. And sometimes, victory for you is remaining quiet and understanding how and where you should approach the injustice. Right? Sometimes, victory is the Battle of Badr, and sometimes it's the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Victory is however Allah Ta'ala wants it to be. So we don't limit Allah by our definition. And the Prophet ﷺ, he taught us this. And he, at that moment, he kind of like certified Khalid ibn al-Walid. Because the story came back that the three generals you chose, they had died. And Khalid was the one who took over. And he's the one who allowed us. If it weren't for him, we all would have been gone. Right? We would have been toast. He was the one who had such a beautiful strategy that allowed us to come back. Only 12 people from the Muslims ended up dying. Only 12. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Khalid, today you have become a sword from the sword of God. Like you have become part of God's will, essentially, for this ummah. And giving him that, that moment. Now, there's one final story that we'll finish with because Malgrib's in four minutes. And it's actually an amazing, heartfelt story. The Prophet ﷺ, after this battle, you'll remember one of the people who passed away was his cousin, Ja'far. Ja'far bin Abi Talib. And... Um, Again, there were other people who passed away, right? But 
Ja'far was one of the people that the Prophet had chosen as a commander. And when he passes away, Ja'far had children that he was leaving, his wife and his kids. So he goes to their house. And obviously, when they got news that their father had died, that's not easy news for anyone to, to have. You know, maybe it's something mentally people prepare for when their father or their husband or whoever goes out to battle. But when you get news that they have died, it's not something easy for anybody. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he goes and he sits in the house of Ja'far and he takes his two sons. One of them was actually named Muhammad and one of them was named Abdullah. And he puts them on his lap and he sees that their hair is a little bit like long. It's kind of a little bit messy. You know, like toddlers, their hair can get a little bit long. Like Musa right now, he looks like a tree, man. I got to cut his hair. So he notices that their hair is a little bit long. And obviously the mood in the house is very sad. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he takes, you know, their hair and he combs their hair and he trims it a little bit for them. These two little boys. He cuts their hair. He's stroking through their hair and he, he gives them a haircut. Maybe just like their father used to. And after he's done cutting their hair, he kind of pats them and he, you know, kind of like braces their shoulders a little bit. He looks at them and he says, you guys look good. You look really good. And he tells Muhammad, the little boy, he says, you look just like your uncle. And he tells him about his uncle. And he says, Abdullah, you look just like me. And that, that, in that moment, after losing their father, it put a smile on their faces. And their mother, the mother of these two boys, she was crying and she said, what are my kids going to do now? These orphans, they have no one to, to be with them. No father, no support, no provider. And the Prophet ﷺ, he looks at her and he says, you think, do you think that I would ever leave people who had lost their father in the sake of their faith, in the sake of Islam, and I would not promise you that I'm going to take care of them? That I would not promise you? And she says, no, you're, you're, you're good for it. I trust you. How many, how many millions of things are happening in the in the life and the mind of the Prophet Muhammad How many different things does he have to take care of? But he still finds time to go and sit with two young kids on his, on his lap because their father had just died and cut their hair himself. He didn't tell someone else, like, hey, can someone get these kids a haircut? He actually did it himself. One of my friends, subhanAllah, one of my friends something really powerful. Before I had my first kid, Musa, he told me, he said, you know, if you want to build a bond with your son, he goes, you're going to kind of start at a disadvantage. I said, what do you mean? He said, your wife will be nursing him. You know, he's going to be nursing from Mahreen, feeding him. And so you kind of don't get that much time. Like by default, he's going to be feeding with his mom all the time. And so I said, okay. He said, you know how you make up for it? I said, how? He goes, you have to change his diaper every time. You change his diaper every time. doesn't matter how stinky, how huge, how diabolical it was. doesn't matter if he had mushrooms for lunch that day. It doesn't matter. You be the one. And so I took that, that advice. I said, okay, I'm going to be the garbage man, right, in this house. And you can even ask my wife for the first, like, two, three weeks. She didn't even, she didn't even touch a diaper because I understood my friend was like, 
That's your time to bond. That's your time. And subhanAllah, dude, subhanAllah. My wife said it one time. She goes, you know, I think had you not done that, you would not be as close to him as you are today. There is a closeness there. So the Prophet Muhammad like if my friend didn't give me that advice, I don't know. The Prophet understood the value of being and serving even children, even young kids. It's so easy to see them as like, oh, they're just kids. They don't really have real problems yet. They're, you know, one time a, a young boy, his bird died. And the Prophet saw him crying. And he goes, what happened? And the boy goes, my bird died. The Prophet said, what happened to your bird? Can you imagine if someone said that to you? They're like, my bird died. You're like, I'm on my way to work. They're crying like, my bird died. You're like, I'll talk to you after five. The Prophet stops in the middle of his day and he goes, what happened to your bird? And the boy tells him the story. He goes, let's go bury the bird. And the Prophet goes and like gives this young boy closure. Like right now, we're like, oh, you know what? A mental health professional would say that's genius, that's closure. The Prophet knew that. That's why he did it. He was walking in the streets of Medina one day with one of the leaders of another tribe and they were talking diplomacy and business and national security and whatever you want to call it. And a young girl comes up to him and grabs his hand and starts walking with him in the streets of Medina. And an old woman comes up to him and says, I have questions. He goes, sure, what's your question? Yes, let me answer your question. And the, 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 the leader of the tribe said, this is when I knew he was a prophet of God. This is when I knew he was not a king. He was not just trying to take advantage of people and have people be his subjects. No, he was there to serve people. He was not there to be served. Even in the difficult times, it's easy to serve in easy times. But can you serve in challenging times? Right? So look at your own life. Evaluate yourself. Maybe you have younger siblings. Maybe you have elder parents. Maybe you have cousins or nephews or whatever that look up to you. Or you are that bigger brother, sister for them. Right? Maybe it's your time to step up and be like how the Prophet ﷺ was. And to cultivate. Many people want to complain about the younger generation, but so few want to actually sit with them. Everyone wants to talk about how they're not, they don't make them like they used to, and no one wants to make them like they used to, right? Like everyone's just sitting here talking about how they're just not the same instead of actually investing time, right? After school programs, obviously now it's a little bit more challenging. Getting involved. These are things that the Prophet ﷺ showed us how to do. And these lessons are just a few. I hope and pray, inshallah, that we can enact and embody some of these beautiful qualities of humility and of uh, you know graciousness and compassion the Prophet ﷺ had. I hope and pray that we can follow the example of Khalid ibn al-Walid and his humility uh, and knowing uh, when it was his time. I hope and pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us forgiveness like he gave Khalid forgiveness. I hope and pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept us and overlook our uh, difficulties and our struggles. And I hope and pray that Allah ta'ala gives us comfort and security in our moments of anxiety, like the moment of Abu Huraira when he was afraid. We ask Allah Ta'ala to accept from us and grant us tawfiq and to make us more like the Prophet Sallallahu And if anyone here is going through any difficulty in your health, in your wealth, in your life, in your emotions, in your spirituality, in anything, we ask Allah Ta'ala to grant us help and to grant us facilitation like he grants rain to the earth and brings about life from the dead soil. Amin ya Rabbil Alameen. 
Barakallahu feekum, everybody, inshallah. Just as a reminder, again, Thursday night, we're going to have soul food here for the college students. So, uh, you know, if you, we're obviously not going to ID, uh, but if we see gray hair, it might, it might make us suspicious. Uh, but inshallah, that'll be for college students. And then on Sunday, 30 and up. So if we see gray hair, that is your ID, inshallah. So Sunday evening, we'll have 30 and up here. Uh, Barakallahu feekum, inshallah. We'll go ahead and line up for Maghrib now. Jazakum khairan wa salam wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.